Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. Welcome to the BIOS Podcast. I'm Jimmy Tian. We're very lucky to have Rob Chess on the podcast. Rob is a successful and esteemed serial biotech entrepreneur and executive. His resume is incredibly long and impressive. He's the chairman of Nectar Therapeutics, a multi-billion dollar market cap company where he was previously president and CEO. He's co-founder and board member, and until very recently the chairman, of Biota Technologies, which uses DNA sequencing to optimize oil and gas production. He's a lead director at Twist Biosciences, a public company that produces synthetic genes using an innovative high-throughput, silicon-based manufacturing process. He was previously chairman and CEO of OPX Biotechnologies, a renewable chemicals company that was sold to Cargill, and also the co-founder and president of Penaderm, a dermatology company that went public and was later acquired by Myelin Laboratories. And on top of all of that, he served in the White House in the first Bush administration, teaches at the Stanford Business School, and is on the board of trustees at Caltech, among various other organizations and companies. We're very lucky to have Rob on the podcast to explore some key trends in biopharma, including scale, platforms, financing, drug discovery, and payment reform. This conversation is mediated by myself and Kamal Obad, the co-founder and CEO of Nebula Genomics. We're here with Rob Chess today, who's a professor at, at Stanford Business School and has done a lot of other things as well. Um, I'd love for you to introduce yourself briefly and, and give a few sentences about sort of the things that you've worked on over your career. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, as I said, my name is Rob Chess. I actually started off originally, I was a computer science major back in the punch card era, uh, then went and got an MBA, started off in the tech industry, was at Intel in its early days, back when Intel's goal was to get to a billion dollars in sales then went to a tech startup. I ended up quitting, took a trip around the world, came back and was looking for something to do, and kind of stumbled into something in the biology field and ended up starting a dermatology company. Did that back in the early 80s. And then after that got up and going and the venture capitalists wisely decided that they should hire somebody who actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> uh, ended up moving to Washington and uh, worked on the first President Bush's uh, White House staff and then left that, was recruited to uh, come run a company called Inhale at the time, and there were the two founders and me, and ran that company for a decade, actually took it public after two and a half years. We changed the name to Nectar, and have been associated with Nectar now either as CEO or as chairman for 29 years. Also, I teach at the GSB, I'm a lecturer, and teach classes in healthcare and entrepreneurship and then have been associated with a number of other companies, either on the board, sometimes a startup CEO, sometimes as chairman, ranging from in the synthetic biology field to renewable chemicals, and most recently, a company that's doing DNA sequencing and oil, oil and gas reserves. Uh, I'm curious to actually learn a little bit more about your involvement with Twist as well, because I know you're lead director yes, over there. So how, how did you get involved with Twist? Well, actually, it's kind of a funny story. One of my former students actually introduced me to Paul Conley, who uh, was one of the early venture capitalists there. And uh, we got together, and he asked me just as a favor if I could meet with the CEO, Emily LaPruce. She was a first-time uh, CEO, and just to give her you know, some thoughts on 
what she might, might be wanting to consider as kind of in building the company. And so I got together with Emily. Uh, we had a very nice meeting. And at the end of it, she says, what can I do to get you in this car today? And I go like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, what can I do to get you in this car today? What can I do to get you to join our board? Which I had no idea that that was her agenda. And I told her, you know, I didn't think that was a good idea. I'm from the biotech industry. I'm not an expert in synthetic biology whatsoever. And I said, tell you what, I'll get together with you again, and I'll give you a list of eight people who I think would be good for your board. So I did that, got together with her. Here's the list. And she says, no, 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 I want you. And then we got together a third time, actually, at the J.P. Morgan conference, and she finally just wore me down. So that's how I ended up getting involved with Twist. It was probably, I guess, about five years ago. Okay. And this was the company, you know, the company had just completed its Series A, hadn't done its Series B yet, yet, and been on the board since then. You know, and the company's done, you know, raised around $250 million privately yeah. and went public about a year and a quarter ago and actually done very well as a public company. It really is doing some very interesting work, you know, pioneering in the synthetic biology field by taking silicon, which is, you know, people have not thought about in connection with synthetic biology, and using that as a medium uh, for actually producing, uh, using it as a production medium for producing uh, synthetic DNA in large volume and a high, highly accurate ma- method. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like throughout your career, you've done a lot of businesses, a lot of them obviously in, in, in with a biotech focus, but still to some extent orthogonal, right? You've done drug discovery, yeah. you've done synthetic biology, you are now involved with, a, you said, I think, gas and oil company. Yeah. Is there some common thread that's sort of directed you as you've gone involved with these different businesses? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the main thing, and this is going to sound kind of odd, is that in general, I've known very little about them when I got into them. Okay. And that may sound like it makes no sense, and it actually doesn't. But it's an advantage because if you, what I've done is it's allowed me to jump in without knowing all the things that could possibly go wrong. So you kind of come in with a fresh high, you know, in each area. I think the general commonality is, you know, one, I believe each of the companies are doing something that is very innovative in its field. Two, I think they have a chance, each of them, to make a large difference. And three, it's an area, you know, in each case, I was able to get involved, you know, frankly, through people who knew, who knew me, who thought I could add some value in some way. Are there some teachings or lessons you've learned with each of these different uh, endeavors that you think have been applicable across different spaces? Uh, well, I think, you know, each of them, you know, the business strategy issues, the startup issues, the types of teams vary. I think, you know, though some common themes that you see, and you see this a lot in biotech companies in general, is that the management in these companies is incredibly important because oftentimes what they start off doing is not what they end up doing. I mean, I saw that, you know, with Nectar, we started off doing inhaled delivery of peptides and proteins. You know, now we're a molecule engineering company focused on cancer and immunotherapies. If you look at actually at the history of the biotech industry, uh, companies like Genentech started off in industrial chemicals. Amgen started off doing chicken growth hormone. Uh, Regeneron went through several iterations yeah. before they got to where they are right now. Uh, Vertex was trying to do rational drug design, ended up going into CF. So, and th- so the commonality here is that you had, in all cases, very strong managements that were able to see the new opportunities and finance the companies well enough to move them through a few different pivots. Yeah, I guess sort of related to that point of jumping from industry to industry, how do you choose a specific problem to solve? 
you've been able to find these really important needs in all these different industries. How do you do? You have a process for yourself to do that. Well, Jim, it's interesting you bring that up because actually, I don't think my I'm very good at that at all. And I feel like a lot of people would disagree with that. <laughs> no, no, is be, and I'll tell you why. Is that I am not actually good. I'm not the person who thinks of the solution for the problem. I'm not the person who takes the blank space and says, "Let me do a needs finding exercise. Let me figure out what is needed here, and let me form something around it." You, what I've, where my niche is, is a little is actually one step past that. What I feel like I'm fairly good at is if somebody is getting here's 20 different companies. Which one of these 20 should I get involved in? Mm. And being able to figure out, you know, which ones have, you know, the right opportunity, which ones have the right technology, which ones have the right entrepreneur and management fit or could, that could be brought together. So it's really more of seeing what opportunities could be built into the companies and helping build the company around that. I think if I actually was left to, gee, you're given a blank piece of paper and you need to go figure out which a company to do, I think I'd be a total disaster. And in fact, I think that's actually one of the keys for people in early stage companies is knowing your strengths and knowing what, what parts you're good at. Some people are really good at that needs finding, as you said. Some people are good at sort of the zero to one phase of how do you get things up and going. Some people are good at sort of the, we've got it up and going, how do we kind of start to build and, gr and grow and professionalize what we're doing. And some people are really good at the late growth phase. So I think it's, it's important to actually understand your own strengths and how that matches to the companies you're looking at. Yeah, so, so, so at Alix, we do a lot of uh, mainly early stage investing yeah. in biotech companies. Mm -hmm. So we look at a lot of pre-seed, seed rounds, yeah. sometimes Series A. And at, at that stage, Frequently, biotech's a little different because you, you're looking yeah. at you know IP as well. But frequently, yeah. we focus on the management team yeah. and trying to figure out if they're the right people to actually scale up the yeah. company. And I, you mentioned that that's a big piece of the yeah. puzzle for you when you're deciding what to yeah. get involved with. Uh, what what do you typically look for in, in that early stage management team? What do you think is is the recipe for success there? Well, I think you know several things, and I think you I think you're actually very smart that that's that's to focus for your firm because mm -hmm. as I said, my experience is. You know, in the end, you have to have good technology, but if you don't have a good management team, your odds of success are vastly lower because of the number of kind of bobs and weaves you need to do along the way and the ability to uh, raise money. So I look for actually several things. One of them is drive, you know, and they're all pretty obvious. You know, one of them is drive and passion. Uh, one of them is somebody who takes input but makes their own decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, you actually don't want people who don't listen. You don't want people who listen too well and are trying to please. Sure. You want people who, you want people who are very fact-based. You want people who have high intellectual capacity. At the startup phase, you also need people who can operate at multiple levels, because you need to be able to multi at a very strategic level, and you need to be able to operate at a very tactical level. Uh, I also look for people who uh, can attract people. I mean, who, you know, because really in a startup, you have no resources whatsoever. You have no financing, you have no partners. You oftentimes need to acquire even some technologies. You need to recruit people. So you need people who are really good at bringing people into the fold and can sell. Mm -hmm. And even in biotech, people don't think, well, selling is important. Selling is incredibly important because you have to attract a team, you have to attract partners, you have to attract money. In, and in particularly in biotech, you have to have people who can communicate really well with the investment community because you're raising many, many rounds of money. 
And last, I think, is you need people who are pretty flexible and aren't just married to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because you are likely need to move, you know, to move to pivot, and you need to have that mental, you know, mental uh, uh, elasticity to be successful. Mm-hmm. Something I, th- I think is really interesting about your career is that you've been involved with a lot of companies uh, at, at sort of all stages yeah. in, in their life cycle, whether it's it's you know the earliest stages to later stages, like with Twist, where it's now a public company mm-hmm. or Nectar, yeah. um, and and I think we've seen recently that companies, especially in biotech, are being built very differently at the earliest stages today than they were a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I think a big piece of that is, you know, companies like Twist, for instance, are providing platforms that smaller companies can build on top of, right? It's easier to synthesize your own DNA. It's easier to run your own lab today. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest changing trends you're seeing today and how uh, biotech companies are being formed? Well, it's funny is, you know, having been in the industry now for, you know, 33 years, there's changes, but actually a lot of a lot of the changes are harkening back to what was done 20, 30, 40 years ago. Because I've seen you know, several, you know, several cycles. There was a period of time where platform companies were really big. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time where partnering companies was really big. There was a period of time where what I call FIPCO, you know, developing your own products is really big. I think the thing that we're seeing now is a few things. One of them is you're seeing a lot more product-specific companies now than you did before. I mean, you've seen that in the past, but a lot more where they're really built around developing a single product. And I think that's enabled by a lot of the trends that you've seen, is that you're able to basically do a lot more deep biology early on. You're also able to outsource a large percent. You know, is right now, you know, one of the things that's changed is the ability to do outside lab work, the ability to do you know, actually use CROs, the ability to have, in some ways, virtual companies that are making single, pro- large single product bets is, you know, is much more feasible now mm-hmm. uh, than it was because you don't have to attract as many people to do it. You don't need as much capital to do it. I think that's good and bad in a way is that what you see is a lot more exits now that are happening fairly early as a result of that because people can show early success and because there isn't a lot of other pipeline around that. Uh, the companies get taken, you know, taken out. You know, phase one, phase two, quite a bit more than you saw in the past. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. So, is that is that a trend? You've been seeing more earlier exits or IPOs. Yeah. I, well, well, it's certainly you're seeing a lot more uh, early IPOs now. Okay. So that's that's really a function. That I think is cyclical, though. Okay. Because we've been in a period of time where we've had very low cost of capital. We've had very good markets, mm-hmm. uh, and as a result. Uh, there's much more of a public market appetite uh, for early sta- earlier stage companies. I mean, okay. you'll see you see companies now that are, you know, sort of some of the platform-based companies that actually go out before they have clinical results. Mm-hmm. You see a lot more that go out at early, at, you know, phase one, phase two. That will change if we have a change in the stock market, because okay. what happens is that's dependent on. Uh, there being uh, public uh, money out there that's willing to take essentially sure. what is called you know venture capital risk, you know that was true actually in the early 80s, that was true in the early 90s, that was true in the late 90s, uh, and then that's been true for pretty much the last decade. So people who are getting new into the you know new into this area don't realize that once the public markets start you know because you know going down. That happens is there's less money that comes in to uh, growth funds, 
and so they actually, you know, when and when so when the money's flat and goes out, they don't have any money for IPOs. Okay. And so, and there's a large number of public companies out there right now. And so this is a trend I don't think will necessarily continue. That okay. Part. But I do think the trend of being able to do, you know, companies that are much more virtual, you know, will continue. Okay. What does this mean for big pharma? Because uh -huh. we've seen that a lot of these big firms have had a slowdown in their R&D pipeline and they've kind of resorted to acquiring innovative upstarts to keep their pipeline yeah. robust. Is this a sustainable business model where you just focus on acquiring companies at the right time? Uh, it's really been their business model now for 20 or 25 years. I mean, if you look at right now, of the big pharma pipeline, pro, you know, depending on whose stats you like, 60 to 70 percent, you know, come from outside of the companies, and that number's going up. So really, what the business model for these companies are, and actually probably should be, is they're not that good at doing early stage high risk research. Uh, what they're really good at is essentially clinical development at a global scale. They're very good at regulatory work. They're good at marketing and sales. So there, it's actually, I think, you know, smart in their case to rely on outside companies, on innovative companies who are willing to take a lot of risk, who are willing to push the mm -hmm. new science, to basically be their early stage R&D engine, and then either partner or acquire, and they serve essentially the role of venture capitalist, you know, funding sure. these companies, and then developer and marketer. Right. Because that's really what their strengths are. Right. Is that sustainable, though? Because we talked about how the earlier stages are getting unscaled with CROs and cloud laboratories yeah. and even decentralized clinical trials. But couldn't the later stages of this process also become unscaled? So you talk about marketing. Where yeah. We've seen tech-enabled marketing where, where smaller firms can go all the way now. Right. Mm -hmm. Regulatory. We can see small firms be able to do that on their own as well. Well, it's, it's an interesting question, and it's dependent on a few things. You know, one of them is it depends on the therapeutic area the company is working in. Is if they're working in an area that's an orphan drug where the clinical trial costs are less and where the marketing costs are less. I mean, if, you, if you're marketing to an area where you only have like a few hundred or even a few thousand specialists, who sell, you know, who are the ones who prescribe mm -hmm. the drug, they know then it's quite practical. That's why you see companies like Biomarin succeed. Okay. Because they basically are selling orphan drugs. They don't need a large sales force. They don't need a large marketing presence. Also, is it depends on whether you're marketing worldwide or not worldwide. The pharmaceutical industry is a worldwide industry. I mean, the U.S., you know, accounts, you know, 30, 40% of the pharma industry. So you need to have outside partners anyway. So, you know, it is practical. The other thing is you have to have willing financial markets. Is that, mar that model works if you're able to finance the company through phase two, through phase three, you know, and people take the risk each, you know, mm -hmm. along the way. Because, you know, as you know, most of these products fail. You know, you have, you know, the stats really haven't improved much over the decades. It's still one product, you know, 10 products in to one product out once you start clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So for the pharma companies, it's not a, you know, it's not a question of competing, you know, because competing with the small, it's really how much are they willing to pay? I mean, I think the question more is, is if you have a broad-based biotech industry, you know, there's, you know, there's enough products for them to choose from, from the company, you know, companies to buy. If you have a narrower industry, then the price will go up. Instead of spending on R&D, they're acquiring. And if they pay enough of a premium, companies will be willing to be acquired.
Because it does seem to me that it's becoming easier and easier for these small companies to go all the way and, and to get their products on the market. So I was really just curious. As about, I said, I think it's easier, yeah. but it's easier with the two caveats is one, you've been living through an easy financing environment, mm. you know, and two, that's true if you're marketing to a small market orphan category. If you have a diabetes product, if you have an osteoporosis product, if you have an asthma product, I'm just taking large chronic yeah. indications, yeah. those are not very practical for a small company to market. Well, I, I, I think part of what Jimmy's getting at is that there, there seems to be a trend towards tech-enabled healthcare, yeah. and we're seeing a lot more of a push, whether it's successful or yeah. not, for direct-to-consumer healthcare companies. Yeah. You know, it's just generics, but companies like Hims and, and Romans. Yeah. And, I, you've been hearing, we've been hearing a little bit about a, a shift from some pharma companies. Some of the big pharma companies are trying to look a little bit more like consumer companies, yeah. right? They're hiring consumer expertise to come on board. Mm-hmm. Is is that a trend you see continuing? If that happens, does it become easier for pharma companies to actually market drugs direct to consumers using things like telemedicine or, or whatever tech services mm-hmm. they can do to, to distribute care directly to people? Well, it's an interesting question because the traditional model has been this huge army Mm-hmm. And I do, and army is the right words, yeah. of pharma reps, you know, who go in there and talk to the, you know, talk to the doctors, try to provide them information. And, you know, there's, you know, so there's two things that are happening. One of them is much, you know, as doctors consolidate, you know, they're getting purchased much more by hospital systems, but, you know, they're integrating into large medical practices. A lot of those practices actually don't want their doctors talking to, you know, to the pharma reps because they don't want them influencing what they're what they're doing mm-hmm. because they want to actually the the healthcare systems want to have more control over the doctor's spend on pharma particularly as you're seeing more capitated care. Okay. So that's kind of one interesting trend as you get greater and greater capitated care where the healthcare system is responsible for everybody the costs as opposed to the fee for service system you'll get more emphasis by the provider systems on what they're spending on even drugs which in turn will want them to be influenced less and less by pharma reps. Okay. So that, I think that's one large interesting trend that kind of plays into your thesis. You know, the second one is that, you know, our consumers, you know, as consumers have more share of healthcare costs, because that's one of the other tra- trends you're seeing, and this may reverse depending on the election, Yeah. you know, is that as people have more share of their costs, they're more conscious of what they spend on and they pay a little more attention to costs. And so there's more of a chance to reach consumers that way. Though it's less than people think because once they hit their deductibles, even in high deductible plans, you know, then they really don't have as much say. You know, are people spend, you know, do people still rely on their doctors for information? Yes. Do, they, do the doctors still need to get educated? Yes. So there's still gonna be a role for that type of marketing. But I do think you're correct that it'll probably be less and it'll probably change in some way to, to something that's more, you know, you know, information through computer, information through video, as opposed to as much person to person. So I think that's probably a fair. So it may lower the marketing costs some ways, but on the other hand, it'll increase the marketing costs because you'll have to do more marketing, less sales. Okay. So, I mean, think of Procter & Gamble. You know, sure. Procter & Gamble, spends a lot on marketing. They may not spend as much on sales, but they spend a lot on marketing. So I do think it's fair you know, to say you're going to have to see more, more direct-to-consumer advertising actually can cost more money, not less. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to keep track of it um, 
in, as things progress in the U.S. and other countries, yeah. where it's it's illegal right, in other countries to do direct-to-consumer marketing yeah. for some drugs. Yeah, and it's uh, actually an interesting question, because direct-to-consumer marketing, it, I think it was 1996 that it became legal. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was not legal bef- before that. that. And whether it's actually been a public good or a public bad is a pretty unclear question yeah. and even controversial within the industry. Because you can argue that actually it's a good thing because it makes people aware of drugs they may not have been aware of. It may make them aware of conditions and go see their doctor of otherwise that they wouldn't have had. But on the other hand, does it lead to greater drug use than there might otherwise mm-hmm. be and more of a f- feeling like there's a drug solution for everything? Yeah. So, And it also, you can argue, it, it actually increases the cost of being in the business particularly for conditions that are fairly chronic where you need to have a consumer brand. Mm-hmm. So it's unclear if it's actually a public good or not a public good. But do you have a personal opinion on that? Uh, I have a personal opinion, yeah. I probably uh, think there's probably more harm in it than good. Okay. I mean, I see the other side of the argument pretty well because I do think it actually increases the cost of drug, you know, the cost of marketing drugs. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think it's part of what actually con- contributes to the negative image of the biopharma industry. You know, because people see all no. these ads and they think of, gee, all the money that's being spent on the ads and why are they doing this. And it's really a sad thing because the biopharma industry, if you talk to people in the industry, they really feel like they're doing a huge public service. They're creating drugs that would otherwise not exist for conditions that were otherwise not well treated. Yeah. And it's really, you know, sad in my, you know, in my view that the, and it's, you know, that pe- that biopharma is being pillared out there, yeah. because people see the high cost of drugs, not realizing that actually pharmaceuticals are only ten percent of overall healthcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the money is actually in providing services. It's actually not in biopharma, but it's what's highly visible to people. Sure, and, and people see the numbers about, you know, the the actual cogs for making drugs, and then the yeah. cost that they're selling it at, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny is that people, you know, there's an expectation that people feel like, you know, that pharmaceutical products are a public good, therefore yeah. they should be priced low. They don't necessarily feel the same way about, you know, should Apple give away computers to everybody? Sure. You know, should Comcast give away internet access to everybody? Mm-hmm. Should Safeway give away food to people yeah. who, who don't have it? But for the reason there's thought that pharma companies should make their products available, you know, Whereas many other industries that people consider necessities does not, you know, is not the same public expectation. We talked earlier yeah. about how R&D in pharma has been slowing down. It's yeah. getting more difficult to discover these yeah. new drugs. Nectar calls its approach to new therapeutic development smart pharmacology. Yeah. So what is the current state of the art in the field and what wave of new technologies are you most excited about? It's a, it's a good question. So first of all, let's just start with kind of why is it that the cost of pharmaceutical development is going up? Yeah. Even though all the trends you cited earlier of why it should be going down. Yeah. You know, as the biology is much better understood, you can outsource a lot more. Uh, we have develop- computational drug discovery. You would think that it should be going down. Yes. So the first reason why it's going up is that a lot of the, the low-hanging fruit has already been discovered. Okay. I mean, that's the first thing that people often forget is that we now have great therapy, you know, we for diabetes, you know, we have therapies for multiple sclerosis, we have therapies for HIV and AIDS, we have incredible new advances in oncology. So as a result of all this, all which is great, the bar 
out there for what do you have to have to have a better therapy is really high. Mm -hmm. So it's much harder now because your standard of what you have to beat is is good. And that's all good. Yeah. So that's kind of, so that I think is actually the number one contributing reason to why the cost is going up because actually the easy stuff has been done. The second reason, and the pendulum has started to swing back, is that for several years, the size of clinical trials that are required increased quite a bit. And the amount of testing that goes into clinical trials, and you know, the things that you actually have to test for in terms of blood work, in terms of MRIs, in terms of scanning. So actually the cost per patient is much higher. And there's a good reason for that, which is there's a lot better diagnostics now. So actually when you're doing clinical trials, there's a lot more things you look for than you did before, but all that costs money. So the cost of a patient in an oncology trial might be forty or fifty thousand dollars per patient, whereas it might have been ten or twenty thousand twenty years ago, mm-hmm. because there's a lot more stuff you can test for now. You can do all this genetic testing, you can do all the blood testing, yeah. you know, things that you didn't have before. So I think that's kind of why it's gone up. So in looking at kind of what are the big trends that are exciting, I actually do think a lot of the computational discovery work is really interesting. And it's, you know, it was funny, is that approach was tried back in the 1990s. It was called rational drug design. Mm -hmm. It was actually the first time there was sort of modeling that was done, and it was thought that, gee, you could come up with a model for what the receptor looked like, you could make the drug that fit exactly into it, and it's like anything, it didn't turn out to be that simple. But now, with the, you know, the machine learning computational models, you can factor in a lot more factors than you could back then. Because a lot of then it was both, you know, there were safety issues that were people understood, there were side effect issues that understood, formulation issues. You know, a lot of the people, you know, in the old technologies didn't understand that you could create all these drugs, but they were basically brick, uh, brick dust and you couldn't formulate them into something that people could take. Mm-hmm. And now all that can be factored into the model. So I actually think that that's really promising. I also think the fact that you now have much better genetic understanding, you have much better proteomics understanding, uh, you have a much better understanding of, you know, the the biology mechanisms going on. And I think with with CRISPR, you can now actually engineer drugs much better, and you can engineer the models to test the drugs much better. Mm. So I think all of that's very promising. So so what are the the technologies in in drug discovery that you're most optimistic about right now? Is well, I know at Nectar, what you know, and I can speak more to Nectar. Is I don't think I'm expert on all the vi- sure. you know, various technology, you know, technologies in the depth that many of your listeners probably are. But I know at Nectar that what's been most interesting for us is understanding is that the depth of biology understanding, coupled with diagnostics that allow you to engineer f- for solving specific problems, are much much better. Mm-hmm. So that you know, we can basically understand the biology and now engineer specific drugs. So there's a lot of technologies out there that are sort of, you know, I call the monkeys and typewriters approach, mm-hmm. which is if you, you know, put enough monkeys together and enough typewriters, you can eventually get the Bible. Uh-huh. And so a lot of the, you know, the computational approaches you know, you, know, you know, are kind of let's do a huge number of molecules, let's narrow down. What we're doing at Nectar is exactly the opposite, is what we're doing is let's have a really deep, understanding of the biology, not just from the point of view of how the receptors works and how the disease mechanism works, but also understanding the pharmacokinetics of the drug to understand 
how it should work over a period of time. And we've, you know, and our technology allows us to actually, using pegylation, to engineer molecules that have different release profiles that allow you to, you know, block certain parts of a molecule, have other parts that are active, have other parts, certain parts that you block, then release over time, that really allow you to fit to the biological mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and that's, you know, an approach that for us, you know, I think is really is really promising. It may not be for everyone because they don't have necessarily the understanding of how to do the drug release over time that we do, but it allows you to do much more exact engineering. Next question that I'm interested in is what you see as the role of academia within the ecosystem of biotech innovation and management. Mm-hmm. So you have a very special vantage point on this, right? You've mm-hmm. been part of many companies. You mm-hmm. teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. You're on the Caltech Board of Trustees, chairman of the Caltech Board Technology Transfer Committee. Mm-hmm. What is the role of academia in commercializing innovations in biopharma? Well, I actually think academia is more important in the biopharma and in general, I would say, you know, kind of in the life sciences field than in any other field. Because there's a core level of understanding of new mechanisms, of new technologies that fuel whole new fields. And those that comes from academia. I mean, unlike, I would say, in the technology fields where the real innovation comes from inside of companies for the most part, in if you look in biology, it's all come, you know, it's come out of NIH, it's come out of Caltech, it's come out of Stanford, it's come out of MIT, it's come out of Harvard. I mean, it's come out of top academic centers doing new discovery. I mean, just look at where CRISPR came from. I mean, just to take a recent example, look at where the machine learning for computational biology came from. You know, you look at even where kind of the original genomics work. I mean, it's, all, it's all out of academia. And it's, you know, usually out of the labs of innovators where you'll see oftentimes professors want to start companies, have their top postdocs and grad stu- students uh, populate them. And that's really how we've seen whole new fields get created. So one of the things that I think is very important, which, you know, is the nurturing of academic funding, you know, in the life sciences, because I think that's where the long-term innovations are going to come from. And that's also where all the grad students get trained. I mean, this is an area unlike, you know, in, you know, in the tech field where, you know, people, you know, bachelor's levels, you know, people can make huge contributions or sometimes even people who just learn on their own, mm-hmm. you know, can become great programmers. In this area, it's usually PhD is is what you need. You need PhD and a postdoc in order to really do significant work in the field. And you have to have good academic funding for that. Otherwise, people won't get attracted to the field. Mm. It's also an area where I think we're at danger for immigration reasons in that because of the, a lot, you know, the environment that we have right now, it's very hard for students outside the U.S. to want to come here and work, you know, both, you know, first in academia yeah. and then in companies. And that's a huge loss for the industry. I mean, if you look at, you know, in Silicon Valley, as you probably know, 30 or 40 percent of the companies were started by people who weren't born in the U.S. And I think biotech is similar to that. And if you look at, you know, so I think those are some, you know, some dangers to academia that actually will affect the industry, not in the short term, but in the long term. I think there's a similarity between this and our point earlier about unscaling biopharma for small yeah. companies. Because now, because of funding, because labs are focused on very niche problems, yeah. they can do a really deep dive into that. Now, they have the technology and, and the funding for them to build a whole company and compete with firms that have scale already. Yeah. 
and for them to go a little farther than than they could have otherwise. Yeah, I think that's fair. Though I think it remains to be seen how many of these, as I said, as I as I, I think in bi in biotech, you know, you know, in the pharmaceutical side. Once again, I think it goes back to the therapeutic theory of in diagnostics, yeah. which is actually where I think a lot of the innovations are coming from right now, is there haven't been that many successful business models. If you look at, you know, up until the last four or five years, there was like three three or four billion dollars in venture money that, that went into diagnostics with one or two successful companies. I mean, genomic health. I mean, you know, that's starting to change now with liquid biopsies yeah. and a few other areas. But I think that's actually where a lot of the interesting innovations out of academia coming coming. I think is actually on the diagnostic side. So it's interesting. You hear a lot of investors, uh, biotech investors, saying, you know, you know, they hear it's diagnostics. They want you to turn into a drug discovery company yeah. instead, uh, which we see companies like Gardent transitioning yeah. into, right? Uh, and even Twist. You know, Twist actually is doing, you know, some uh, drug early drug discovery. Work oh, really? As well. Okay, yeah, because that seems to be where the yeah. money's at. That's where investors want companies to go. What What is it about diagnostic companies that you think make the business models just inherently difficult? Uh, reimbursement. Okay. Reimbursement and reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's one reason, three times. Because the problem is, is that you don't get paid that well for your innovations. Because you know, if you if you do a brand, you know, a new diagnostic, you know, say, yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to take uh, Genomic Health as an example. They're a company that yep. just sold. Is you know, they did an incredibly high value diagnostic. Their diagnostic was basically the Oncotype DX, which said if you have uh, breast cancer, lymphonegative, estrogen re receptor positive breast cancer, which is half of, of breast cancer cases. They're going to tell you whether you should take chemotherapy or not. You know, that's of huge value to the patient. It's of huge value to the payer. What do they charge for that? It's you know, it's uh, you know, it was originally priced at about thirty-six hundred dollars. It's now around five thousand dollars. It's used by one a person one time in their life, yeah. hopefully. A therapeutic, you know, if you develop a new oncology. You know, therapeutic. It's being you. You know, it's you know, it's being used. See, in some cases, chronically for many years, might sell for fifty or eighty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Be used by a broad number of people. The economic, you know, the development cost is more, but the economics are much better. So, so what I, is it about companies like Gardens, for instance, that have made them successful in the diagnostic space? Well, I mean, the, the you know the liquid biopsy area. I mean, it's an area of high value. Though it'll be interesting to see if they've they're a very successful. Stock. It remains to be seen if they're a very successful company. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Something I'm I'm curious about. Going back to the bit about academia, a lot of people have argued, especially in tech, that MBA degrees are becoming less important, and a lot of talented individuals are foregoing business school. Yeah. Like you hold an MBA from Harvard. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think about this? Do you see a similar trend in healthcare or biopharma specifically? Uh, actually, well, in biopharma there traditionally have not been a huge number of MBAs who have gone in. You know, and part of it is the product cycles are really long. The products are pretty technical. However, in other parts of healthcare, I actually think there's, a, you know, and I think that area too, but more so in other parts of healthcare, I think actually there's a huge role for MBAs because I think the area is changing really quickly. And I think the skill set of understanding of how to diagnose and project what's going on in business and understanding at a micro level what everybody's incentive structures are. Because the thing that's most complicated about the healthcare outside of technology is actually understanding why people do what they do. And it usually comes down to understanding incentives. Like, how does a doctor actually make money? How does a health hospital actually make money? 
because that affects their prescribing habits, that affects their purchase habits, that affects what health IT they buy. And MBAs are really good at those skills. So actually, I, I actually think it's a wonderful area for MBAs to go into, even if they don't have biology or life sciences backgrounds. Because that basic, you know, pulling out and teasing out the economics to understand what's actually going on is what's the hardest part about understanding healthcare. Actually, MBAs, you, you know, is, it's actually the easiest place to start a company as, as a fresh out of school MBA for reasons that are totally non-obvious. Uh -huh. Is the reason is, is because in tech, you know, the companies scale really quickly. So you actually have to know how to manage. In biotech, you really don't have to know how to manage because your companies, you know, essentially you have this huge cycle where all you do, you have to be good at raising money, you know, what MBAs are good at, and you have to be good at getting people to work for you, you know, yeah. and, and recruiting people. Yeah. And if you do that, I mean, the strategy part isn't that hard, and you don't, and the management part isn't that hard because you, you're not selling to any customers for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually pretty, so like, it's a pretty good thing. And I've had several people I know who've pulled together biotech companies that they could never pull together another company because you really don't have to, you know, if you, if you hire good if you hire good people and you let them know, you know, do it, you, you don't have, you don't have all that sales execution. You don't have quarterly goals you have to meet. It's a, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So, so, so what was your day-to-day -day like early on at, at Nectar when you're sort of going through product development? So back in, in, actually, we were Inhale at that time. But, okay, uh, sorry, Inhale. Yeah, yeah, at Inhale. It's funny, it's, the pace isn't that 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 bad, mm -hmm. you know. It's actually you get these amount of free time. It's not yeah. that, you know. You have these little bonuses. Oh my God, we gotta go raise some more money. Yeah. No, but as CEO, I didn't have that much to do every day. You know, okay. it's like, what am I? Gonna, I'm not gonna work in the lab. Uh -huh. You know, you know, you kind of work. You know, you kind of have meetings and and, and you know, it communicate because the companies aren't that don't get that big that quickly. Yeah. And so the communication is pretty, you know, when there's 15 or 20 people in the company, it's not that hard. Okay. You go out and do business development. You know, I did just, you know, we were a partnering company. So I spent a lot of time, you know, going and meeting partners. But it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. And you, and it's, a, and the pace is a lot, you have a lot, it's not like tech where you're in the sprint where, oh my God, if we don't do this by this day, you know, our, you know we're going to have yeah. 10 competitors out there. You have intellectual property, hopefully protecting you somewhat. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. You worry like, you know, okay. And the other thing is these companies don't fail very much, uh -huh. even though they should. What, what do you mean by don't, don't fail? Well, is, uh, is you think like, you know, if you have, if you're in a business where one out of 10 products that go in, come out, you know, you'd have all these companies going bankrupt all the time. Mm -hmm. Look, very few <laughs> biotech companies ever go bankrupt because they always have something that's promising to somebody. So someone uh, will buy them or scoop them scoop up. The, or, or that you'll go and you'll do another financing. It's like, well, okay, well, this didn't work, but we've got this molecule back in preclinical. It <laughs> looks really interesting. You know, and we've got some animal data. Yeah, okay, you did a down round. But, <laughs> you know, but they don't fail very often. Interesting, Tech okay. companies fail a lot more yeah. than biotech companies yeah. do. Huh. I mean, in fact, you know, you're going to, as a seed investor, you won't have to worry about that as much. But your Series B, your bigger investors will, because it's sort of like, well, this didn't work out. And, it, and everything, it's always, well, this is just taking a little longer. And yeah, the talks didn't work out really well, but we've got a backup molecule. Mm -hmm. yeah, so you always have something that sounds good. Okay. <laughs> just got to tell a good story, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And because there's no reality to it, because all, you know, what is, you know, uh, there's not a program to go see. There's not customers. Yeah. There's no demo. All it is is a story. Yeah. So it's you know kind of a funny business. Yeah.
tons of us at the fund were, were seed stage founders. And we found that there's a lot of not necessarily misaligned incentives in healthcare, but maybe yeah. it's not a completely okay. rational market always, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, well, that's a, a completely rational. It is a 100% rational market. It just depends who you know whose version of rationality it is. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it is each person is acting rational. Sure. It's just that it adds up to lots of misaligned incentives. Yeah. You know, and it comes down to you know, at a very simple level, the people who pay for healthcare are not the people who use healthcare, are not the people who prescribe healthcare. Yeah. So the incentive of the person who prescribed the doctor is not the same as the percent you know, as the incentive of the person who pays, which is the health insurance company, which is not the same incentive of the person who actually is the consumer of it, and is not the, 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 the uh, same incentive of the of the system provider, which is the hospital. And so they all have different ways they make money and different incentives. And that's what the if you kind of look if you tear it apart. That's the core problem in healthcare is misaligned incentives. Do you think there's been any any progress in aligning those incentives and you know sort of making the goal be essentially keep the patient out of the hospital, keep them healthy? The, you know, there's actually some things that are being done there that are great experiments. You know, if you look at and I'm going to give you an example is Kaiser, mm-hmm. Kaiser Healthcare System. If you look at the dollars spent, the outcomes come out. They're they're the best model in the U.S. right now. I mean, you look at in terms of chronic care, you look at in terms of diabetes care, you look in terms of heart attacks, you look at all the health outcomes you know, per dollar, Kaiser does great. So why does Kaiser do great? Two reasons. I mean, other than they're, you know, what, you know, you know, good management, sure. but it's one that they had their average patient about 10 years. So they have an incentive to actually do prevention for people. Mm-hmm. If you're a health insurer and you only have them for one year or two years, the average health insurer has them for two and a half years, what incentive do you have to spend on prevention? Not a lot, because you'll spend on prevention, somebody else will get the benefit. The second thing they do is they basically get paid on a capitated basis, which means you pay one fee to them no matter how much health care you use. So they don't have an incentive for, for you to overuse health care. Mm-hmm. So they have an incentive for you to be well with the minimum amount of, of health care system usage. Mm-hmm. Very different than our traditional fee-for-service system, yeah. where the doctor, while they don't necessarily act like this, their economic incentive is not to get you well. Mm-hmm. Because you know the more you come back, the more they make. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's an interesting experiment, the capitation. And also you're seeing now Medicare actually experiment more with bundled payments. So like when if you get a hip, hip, hip surgery where they give you one payment for that, as opposed to pay you for everything that you do along the way. It incents people to actually make process improvements. So I think you're seeing some interesting experiments in the U.S., but it hasn't been applied in a systemic manner yet. Okay. How do we fix the problem of churn for health insurance companies? So you mentioned that's a big problem in preventative care, keeping people healthy before they go into hospital. Yeah. But also we have in the pipeline hundreds of gene therapies that are potential one-shot cures. They are going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. And if there's so much churn, if people are switching plans every three years, there's no incentive for a payer to to pay for that gene therapy if someone else is going to benefit. Well, it's an interesting question. There's actually some interesting experiments that are going now on with payment models for that, where you pay for it over a period of years. So that, you know, you, you might say instead of paying a one shot, and you, where this problem first actually came up was with the hepatitis C drugs, with yep. Savaldi, and yep. when there was, you know, about, you know, it was probably about six years ago, cures came out for hepatitis C. Gilead was the first company that came out for it. They were charging initially well over $100,000. And it put a huge strain on the healthcare system because you would have these exact issues. You would pay one time $100,000, the person would be cured, 
Whereas if you never paid for the cure that, you know, and you have a health insurer that only had the patient for a year or two, they're better off not curing them and letting somebody else deal with the issue. So that was kind of what brought the problem to the fore. The interesting solutions for it that are being, you know, is, is payments over time. There's also been thought about having a pool. All the health insurers pay into a pool and that that pool pays across all people for these types of products. Right. Is that not just a variant on the current reinsurance industry, though? I guess a, a special yeah, carve-out for these hyper-expensive specialty pharmaceuticals. It, 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 is a, it is a variant of it, and it might be, in, you know, in the absence of, you know, something where it says you have to stay with an insurer for an extended period of time. The other solution for that, which would be, you know, you know obviously there's a single-payer solution for it, if you go short of a single payer, you know, payer solution, it would be is if you got insurance off of being on, you know, employer based and had it all be individual based, hmm. you know, you could you know basically have something where pe- you know you could give incentives to people to stay with their insurers for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So there's other I think there's other non-public based solutions that people could consider. Anything you want to? Yeah, anything like interesting comments that you'd want us or question you'd want us to ask you as a a closing comment or? Well, I don't know if it's relevant for your audience, but you know, actually, why go into healthcare with all the issues in healthcare? I it's funny. I started off in the tech industry and switched over to the you know to to the healthcare industry, and I would never go back. And the reason is is, you know, when I was in the tech industry, I mean, the products did a huge amount of good. They were really interesting, but kind of at a core. Most of the people who were in the industry were there either because they wanted to make a lot of money or they wanted to do something that they thought and their friends thought was really cool. The great thing about being in the healthcare industry and almost any part of the healthcare industry you are in is that every single day you go to work, you actually feel like you're making a difference in people's lives. And that provides a mission to companies that gets you through the really hard times and the really good, you know, the good times are easy, but through the really hard times. So like at our company, Nectar, we've had several times where the company's done great. We've had several times where we've had products fail, products pulled off the market where it's been really hard, but we've had very, very little turnover during that time. And the reason is, is because the people at the company are there because they think the products we're developing will make a difference in people's lives. And that's the primary reason that they're there. And that's true throughout the industry. The other big advantage of that is that in general, and there's exceptions to this, the people in the industry are actually pretty nice people because they're there for some mission other than just making a lot of money. And it makes for actually a much better work environment. So I really encourage people, if they're thinking about it, of doing a career in healthcare. And there's a lot of hard things about it. It's hard because of the reimbursement. It's hard because of government regulation. There's a lot of change, which actually creates a lot of opportunity. But no matter what you're doing, you can probably feel really good about what you're doing on a daily basis and really know you're making a huge difference in people's lives. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.